Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. God's word reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's go ahead and bow our head in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne humbled. We are ready to receive your word. We ask that your name is highly exalted, that your son be highly exalted. And we pray also that your spirit will be at work through the hearing of the word. Please, uh, Bless this study. We love you. We pray all these things in your wonderful son's name. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to first start off by saying it's a great honor and privilege just to even be behind this pulpit and preach to you guys. I know you guys have a phenomenal pastor already. I actually had the privilege of meeting him a couple years ago over at a shepherd's conference. And uh, we touched base yet again uh, at the beginning of this year. And so, again, I am grateful for the opportunity to go over God's word with you, especially out of Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, really, the, the title of today's sermon is The Depravity of Man. The Depravity of Man. So, no, this is not intended to be a, a self-exalting sermon uh, or something that will give you uh, some great energy for your self-esteem. As a matter of fact, it ought to do the opposite. If we must remember what we have been saved from, then we ought to go to God's word for that. And so Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 7, I want us, I want us to really grasp three main things out of these uh, seven verses. One is the depravity of man being dead in your trespasses and sins. I want us to really take a, a different view uh, because the way we view this is exactly how we view our lives. It will also affect how we view the gospel and it will also view how we view God. It will affect how we view God. And so a true understanding of this doctrine brings much glory to God, the doctrine of total depravity. And uh, really, in, throughout church history, there's been history of heresies against the doctrine of human depravity. Uh, one that I can think of is Pelagianism, which started really in the 5th century by a man named Pelagius. His argument was that man can indeed fall into sin, but that is by choice, he says. Man does not have to fall into sin. They simply have a choice whether they're going to sin or not. People in the end are practically good. This belief also had a view that man has the free will to choose Christ on his own. This battle of human depravity and Pelagianism happened in the 5th century uh, between Augustine and Pelagius. And Augustine fought this battle before for many years, and it, uh, it's sad to say that we still fight this battle now. 
It is a battle that still rages bright even today. Uh, why is that, we should ask? Why is it that we refuse to hang on or we, re- we want to hang on to uh, this ability that we have to make something for our salvation, right? That we can work towards our salvation. That is incorrect when we go to the pages of Scripture. Again, this is another attempt of man trying to hang on to its freedoms. And in a sense, it's a sense of pride that we have something to do with our salvation. And if we look at man, we understand that uh, our nature is that we always work for something that we are going to obtain, right? Whether it's the relationships that we have, there's a sense of work that we have towards those things, uh, or something more materialistic, whether it's cars or uh, a house or a good job, we work towards those things. But that is not the case when it comes to salvation. As a matter of fact, when we are faced with the gospel, it disrupts everything that is within the inner man. And this is something that man cannot obtain or work towards because it is a gift of God. This view of uh, human depravity is a view that's been held by great men uh, really since church history, since the beginning of, of the church era. Such men as, as I said, Augustine, but also John Huss, Wycliffe, Martin Luther, we all know John Calvin, and Tyndale as well. As a matter of fact, to combat this, Luther wrote uh, a great piece of work, and it's called The Bondage of the Will. Uh, These were men who played a huge role in the Reformation, which then paved the way to have the proper gospel come here to America. I love what MacArthur says. He says, the gospel came to America on a sea of blood. Most of these men were martyred for their faith in Christ and fought triumphantly to have the proper gospel preached. And so therefore, brethren, this is the gospel that we preach. It's a gospel that only God is glorified by. Spurgeon also, if you are very familiar with him, the prince of preachers, right? Charles Spurgeon. Uh, He resisted the notion of human free will. He contended that such an idea elevates man to the place reserved for God alone. He goes on and says, free will, doctrine, what does it? It magnifies man into God. It declares God's purposes a nullity since they cannot be carried out unless men are willing It makes God's will a waiting servant to the will of man. Further, Spurgeon affirmed, If God requires of a sinner who is dead in sin that he should take the first step, then he requires just that which renders salvation as impossible, under the gospel as it was under the law, since man is unable to believe as he is to obey. He is unable to obey. Simply put, Spurgeon believed that no human will is entirely free. It is either a slave of sin or a slave of Christ. But it's never, ever free. So let's take a look at our main text in Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were dead in trespasses and sins because we have a sinful nature. Not because we have at one time committed a sin that turned us into sinners a sin nature has been part of every part of our being since the beginning. That is the misconception now, is that uh, we sin, so therefore that made us a sinner. No, we sin because we are sinners. We sin because we are, by nature, sinners. And so to get a, a better understanding of why is it that we sin, we have to deal with the inner man. Every single one of us 
has that inner inner being that really everything flows out of that produces the outer man as far as actions and so turn with me to the gospel of matthew matthew 15 and we will go over plenty of scripture today matthew 15 1 through 20 God's word reads, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of the father or mother is to be put to death. But you, whoever says to this, to his father or mother, Whatever I have... That would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. By this you you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. And it says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines that uh, as doctrines the precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know, what the, that, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone, they are blind guides of the blind, and if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So what is our Lord saying here in the gospel? These individuals were so caught up in the physical washing of their hands as a tradition. But, it, but our Lord is saying it's not what's What's, it's not that tradition ought to be elevated. It actually should never be elevated over the word of God. What he is saying is you have to deal with the inner man because out of the inner man is what comes out of our mouth. That is exactly what defiles a man. It all has to do with what is inside of our hearts. And so we also see this in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 7 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Again, we are sinful individuals because of what is already in our hearts. We have to understand that the, the problem with the whole world is sin of course but that sin is generated from the heart 
it has always been the inner man that has the issue. Turn back with me to our main text. Uh, back to Ephesians. Now let's take a look at chapter 4. Ephesians uh, 4. Let's take a look at 17 and 18. It says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Because of the hardness of the heart. There is absolutely nothing that a dead person can do to make themselves live again. And when we see that in verse 1 and, and chapter 2 of Ephesians, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that's exactly what we're talking about here. The example that I can think of is really found in John 11, where Jesus is calling Lazarus to come forth, right? One question that we ought to ask ourselves, and again, Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for, I believe, four days now. And uh, everyone is, is really was hoping that Jesus could be there sooner so that he may not die. And yes, he did die, and, and Jesus calls him to live. What is it that, what, what was in Lazarus that really made himself to be alive again? Absolutely nothing. It was the effectual calling of the Lord. It says, Lazarus, come forth. There was nothing within dead Lazarus that could ever make himself to respond to that unless there was an intervention from God. And that's really how we ought to view the gospel is the Holy Spirit will only work through the gospel because it's the Holy Spirit's job to regenerate the heart, to bring somebody to life again. A picture of, of this is, is found in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you turn with me there, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verse 6. six. Second Corinthians 4. Let's start in verse 5. It says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is, this is God shining the light into the darkness of the heart. This is actually very similar language to what we see in the creation account in Genesis, where there was darkness that was hovering over, uh, over the earth, right? And God said, let there be light. It's a miracle. As a matter of fact, it's the exact same miracle when it comes to somebody responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes God calling them and shining that light into a dark heart. It's a miracle that can only be done by God if the believer is to be saved. Uh, we know that because they're dead in their, tra in their trespasses and sins. Romans 3 talks about this quite clearly. It says that no one is righteous there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. None whatsoever. Uh, the best example that I can think of is being dead in your trespasses and sins is similar to a man who is being strapped down to a chair and, is, and has his hands tied down. He can't get up, no matter how much somebody calls him. He can't. But even if those straps were to come off and the Lord were to stand before him and say, Come to me, worship me, 
he will then fold up his arms and say, no. That's exactly what being dead in your trespasses and sins. It's not only that you cannot respond, it's that you will not respond. It takes a miracle of God. Uh, John chapter 3, we all, know, we all know this very well, and I'm, I'm almost certain that your pastor went over this uh, Easter Sunday, perhaps. We see this conversation between our Lord and Nicodemus. But I want to take you to a specific verse that speaks to the nature of man. That's John chapter 3, uh, 18 and 19. Let's emphasize 19. It says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. The dead person who's dead in their trespasses and sins loves their sin. They love their sin and so they do not want to respond to the gospel. Of course, this echoes in Romans 3. This is the reason why no one can, no one is righteous, no one seeks after God, no one understands. They have all gone their own way. And so we understand that there is a depravity to man. And as we look at Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3, we read, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We walked according to the course of this world. What does this mean? What does it mean to walk in accordance with the world? Really, it means that we walk and belong to a world and all of its views. Uh, all you have to do is turn on the TV, and, and it'll tell you exactly what the world thinks in general. Now, the world is really speaking of a system. It's a system that really enslaves people to their own sin already. As a matter of fact, um, it, it, it feeds them everything that they already want, all their sinful desires. And so because we were of the world, therefore all of our works were wicked. We cannot work our way to salvation. There's absolutely nothing that we can do to be in good graces with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah speaks of this as well. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 64 speaks about those who really depend on their works to be in right standing with God. Isaiah 64 Verses 6 and 7. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our inequities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have delivered us into the power of our inequities." Similar language to Romans, right? He has given you over to those sins. And so all of works outside of Christ are described here in verse 6 as filthy garments. Filthy garments. 
Uh, the imagery of our works in this passage are compared to really in the, in the language here is menstrual cloths within the proper text. That's exactly how these things are viewed before a holy God. That's why we can never do anything to save our own selves. This is true of unbelievers who attempt to do their best as far as behavior. And you can, you can testify to this if you proclaim the gospel and try to impart the gospel upon somebody else, is there's always a blame game, right? When you try to witness to somebody who is lost, it's always a comparison. Well, at least I haven't done this, or at least I haven't done that. And for some reason, Hitler always comes up, right? And so that, that should tell you about the inner man, right? That is the inner man. But they must understand that there is absolutely nothing that they can do because the comparison should not be with another person, another human being. The comparison should be to a holy God whose, whose uh, standard is absolute perfection, absolute perfection. Uh, turn with me to Colossians. Colossians 1.21. I did say we were going to go over plenty of scripture today. Colossians 1.21. It says, And you once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled you. If you skip over to chapter 3, Verses 6 and 8 says, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked, past tense, you once also walked in that manner when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. This is who we used to be. We are no longer that anymore. Again, um, this letter is, of course, written to the church, but we must, we must never forget what we have been saved from. Uh, back to Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 3, or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, speaks in regards to our conduct. Our conduct was that of ourselves and how we were always indulging in the lust of the flesh and fulfilling the desires of the flesh as well. A good question to ask ourselves is why was it, why is it, or was it so easy for us to completely obey the flesh over and over again before we ever came to Christ? Why is it so easy for us to do that? Well, three things really stack up against us. One, we live in a fallen world, and we, all we have to do is go all the way to Genesis and, and find out in chapter 3 of the fallenness of the world. The fall is really a result of that, and so, therefore, Romans speaks how all creation groans for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, one, we live in a fallen world already. Number two, we have an opposition. Who is that opposition? Well, the opposition is Satan and his demons. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So here's a sinful individual who has already a fallen world and now has to deal with opposition. And finally, in addition to this, we want to stack this on top and we have a sinful nature, right? We have a sinful nature. As a matter of fact, David writes this in Psalm 51.5. And he says, I was brought forth in inequity and in, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not speaking that he was born out of a sinful act, but yet he is speaking that he was born into sin. 
sin is really what, what rages within our own body. He was born into sin, just like, just like every single one of us. And so all of this stacked against us, right? We, we live in a fallen world. We have opposition. And we also have a fallen nature. And somehow we believe that we ourselves can overcome this and make a decision for Christ. That is absolutely not the case. From being dead in our trespasses, there is absolutely no way that a man could ever save themselves. It is God who calls us out of such filth, out of being dead in our trespasses and sins. This has to be a work of, of God if we should ever have a chance for salvation. Yes, we do believe, but before we do so, he shows us his immense grace upon us. Uh, back to Ephesians chapter 2, we start to really turn the corner here in verse 4, which is really my favorite part. Because after Paul has crushed you uh, under the law and, tell, and, 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 informs of, and informs us of our sinful nature, he gives us the great news in, in verse 4. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. This is finally where we start to turn the corner. But God, but God. Turn with me to uh, 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, 9 and 10. God's word reads, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the reason why we can be saved. It's because of God's great love. In the Greek, it's an agape love, right? It's a, it's a love that is tied to an action. Uh, we see this clearly in, in uh, John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world, that he, there's the action, he gave his son. And so therefore, we see that, that it has to be God that has to rescue us if we have any shot of salvation. Um, propitiation is, a, is one of our favorite words here, and really not just in First John, but in Romans. It comes from a Greek word, helasmas, which means to appease, uh, to make an atonement, meaning that he, Christ, fully satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. It is Christ that fully satisfied the wrath of God. He is the one. That is an immeasurable love, the ultimate form of love. This is the agape love. It's because we are saved because of his great love for us. And as we know in Ephesians, in the very beginning part, um, it's because of his good and perfect will. Turn back with me to the book of Ephesians. And we see this. In verse 4, Ephesians 1, verse 4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. It has absolutely nothing to do with you or I. It has everything, everything to do with the good and perfect intention of of his good and perfect will. And so, uh, Romans chapter 6, to shed some more light upon this, 
As we move forward, uh, we will go to Romans, but in, in verse 5 in chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In Romans 6, 1 through 7, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that, the grace, so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. Verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so that we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would be no longer slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. If you skip forward down to uh, verse 11, Even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you do not obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And that's who we are now in Christ. Um, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to the perfect master, the perfect master in our Lord Jesus Christ. And back to Ephesians chapter 2. So it's God who calls us out of our deadness and our sins. And verse 6 says, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the same spirit uh, spoken of in, in chapter 1, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Uh, again, this is uh, a complete uh, work of God from beginning to end. For us to be dead in our trespasses and sins, to be called from God, to be in Christ now, and it doesn't stop there. Now we rule and reign with Christ and it's this, it's this same spirit who has really called us from our sins that has taken us from our sins and raised us all the way up to the heavenly places. Uh, I don't know if your mind truly grasped all of that, but it should be something that we should be in awe for, right? If we could remember correctly what we were in our, in our trespasses and sins. In our trespasses and sins, we were raised together. He made us alive, and now we are in Christ. It is an entirely work of God. He is the one guiding us and drawing us. We see this in, in uh, the Gospel of John. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. We'll be taking a look at verses 41 and 44. This is a clear explanation of what uh, what it is to be called by God. Uh, John 6, 41 through 44. 
It says, therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves, for no one can come to me unless the father who sent me, what? Draws him, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you go up just to actually to verse, back up a little bit to verse 37, Christ previously had stated in verse 37, all that the Father gives me, I will come, uh, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. It is God who calls, and the reason why Jesus can't cast those who come to him is because it is God who is drawing him to the Savior. Again, it is an entire, entirely work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back to Ephesians uh, chapter 2, in verse 7, it says, So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's a good time to stop and, and really ask, you know, aren't you grateful for the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards you? I hope that is something that you reflect upon every single day as you wake up in the morning, that you are no longer uh, dead in your trespasses and sins, but that he has rescued you from that and that you are now members of the church and you're serving in the body of Christ. Uh, I, the gospel is not something that we move on from. It's something that we continue to go back to. Um, it's, it's never something that we graduate from at all whatsoever. Again, it's only because of his exceeding riches and kindness that we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. Salvation is an entirely work of God. Uh, as a matter of fact, the gospel itself is Trinitarian. It, it, is, it, it is a work of the triune God. We are called by God the Father through the Holy Spirit to the Savior in Jesus Christ our Lord. And uh, let's turn to Titus. I want to go here, even though it was already in the bulletin, and it's in uh, Titus chapter 3. Let's take a look at verses 4 through 7. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen to that, right? Not only has he rescued us from the penalty of sin, but in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That you will rule and reign with Christ. So what is the so what about all of this, right? As one of my professors says, uh, what's the so what about all of this? Well, the so what about all of this is that we must view God much higher for who he is and what he has rescued us from. He has rescued us from a sinful, the sinfulness of our flesh and has redeemed us from that. Uh, think about this, from being dead in our trespasses and sins to then be in Christ, to be taken up to the heavenly places, and then to rule and reign with Christ. 
That is something that is unthinkable. That is unthinkable for us who are sinful individuals, but yet his love and his mercy is much, much more. How do we know that his hand is upon every single part of our sanctified and our salvation ultimately to be glorified? We see that because Romans 8, if you turn with me there, his hand is in the entire process of salvation. Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. To really wrap this up, Paul writes here, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 30 should tell you that it is the complete work of God. Just look at how many times do you see the word he, right? Nowhere does it say you. It's always of what he has done. He predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, justified. he ultimately will glorify. Theological terms, 8:28 or 8 uh, Romans 8:30 is is really considered to be the God's golden chain of salvation. Uh, we see that from R.C. Sproul. Uh, this is God's golden chain of salvation. It cannot and will not be broken because His hand is upon uh, all of it from beginning to the very very end. And so all of this, knowing this doctrine of of human depravity is so that we may correctly uh, see the, the righteous work of God. Knowing this doctrine correctly not only gives us more knowledge of the great work of God, but our worship is more deeply rooted to a proper truth of who God really is and what he has redeemed us from. We are able to worship with a deep understanding of what our Lord has rescued us from. And to get a little bit of a glimpse of what that worship looks like, turn with me to Revelation Chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, starting verse 9 through 12. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a, large, with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is because salvation belongs to God, and so we ought to worship in that fashion. Now, I want to leave you with John five twenty-five, and it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And I pray that that will be you if you are outside of Christ and may not know him. I pray that you may come to know him for the forgiveness of your sins. 
And so with that said, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you all the honor, glory, and praise for the proclamation of your word. Uh, We ask that you continue to use us um, in spite of us and who we are, and that you continue to empower us in the endurance of our sanctified walk, and that your, your son's name may be highly exalted wherever we go and proclaim this glorious gospel. We love you. We pray all these things in your wonderful son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen.